0: Welcome back. Um, This is session two of our series on um, Revelation, and today we're going to look at um, chapter two and three. If you recall from session one, um, the focus of the end of chapter one was uh, this amazing vision of Jesus um, in his his glory, um, ruling, uh, holy, this great king who's the Alpha and the the Omega and that picture we're going to return to and continue with because the beginning of chapter two builds on two elements from that picture it sort of expands the view out to um, uh, show us a little bit more about this figure um, this great figure and what what he's actually doing and so um, the elements of the golden lamp stands in the seven stars in <clears throat> his right hand become really significant in understanding the dynamic and what's happening in this part of the vision. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But pretty much the rest of Chapter 2 then is Jesus addressing the seven churches one at a time. Um, These seven churches, historical churches in Asia Minor, so there's Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and and what we'll, what we'll see with, um, is that there's a very common pattern to the address to each church, each of the churches. It's quite specific and personal, um, and and relevant to to the particular church. But there's also common threads and a common pattern in in the way these addresses develop. That is quite helpful and interesting to see. So, I'll just talk to you a little bit. being a history teacher, I can't help and but not do this, but um, I'll talk to you a little bit about the historical significance of these seven churches just for a minute, because i I, I don't really want that to be the focus of the session once we start to get into looking at the um the actual text. So, three of these um, seven cities. Ah, uh, coastal cities. So, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum were were all Greek, um, significant Greek city states um, that have been pro- had been progressively taken over by the Romans. They're 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 big, quite big cities in the ancient world, powerful cities. Um, Ephesus um, was the regional capital. Um, Smyrna was a big, big trading post, trading city, quite a wealthy city. And Pergamum um, had a reputation right through the ancient world as a, um, again, another wealthy, powerful city-state that had an extraordinary library um, in the centuries before, uh, in the centuries before uh, this period. Um, many of these cities, if you ever get the chance to go to um, Turkey, the ancient ruins um in many of these places, are quite extraordinary. Ephesus and Pergamum in particular are quite amazing places. Ephesus would be, I would say, um, have some of the greatest uh, Greek and Roman ruins in the ancient world. It's almost an intact city like walking around Pompeii or um, a place like that. Um, And you can see things like the amazing amphitheater, the port, the... The, the library, public buildings, there's all sorts of um, amazing things to see there. Pergamum, sim- similarly, is an extraordinary um, uh, archaeological site even today, so it's built right up on the top of a citadel and you actually catch a cable car up to the top of this um, this outcrop of rock. It's like a, an acropolis but much, much more spectacular and higher than the one in, in Athens. And there you can see the ruins of the ancient library and uh, the Temple of Zeus and uh, a whole lot of other royal and um, religious buildings on the top of this um, um, citadel as well. The other cities, the other four cities um, are more, are smaller. Um, Sardis was a very significant city. That was previously um, a royal capital of the Persian Empire that has been taken over obviously by the late 1st century by the Romans. Um, uh, Laodicea, um, Thyatira and uh, what's the other one? Philadelphia, I don't know as much about. Um, Laodicea is, is, is in an interesting part of the world. It's probably, I don't know. 50 or 100 kilometres inland from Ephesus and um, it's renowned in that local area for um, amazing hot springs and um, things like that and and um, there's this, there's a significant, another significant settlement just down the road from Laodicea called uh, Hieropolis that has, again, amazing archaeological ruins. Um, many of these places are quite prominent in Um, the story of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts. And so if you want to learn more about the stories of these places, I'd point you to to Acts. Go and have a dig around for where Paul visits these places. He establishes lots of the churches in this part of the world. And also get onto the internet. Um, There's there's amazing sites where you can do virtual tours of lots of these, um, these ancient cities as well. But I'll pause for a minute and let Hannah read through the two chapters. It'll take a little bit of time. Then we'll come back and we'll start to look at um, uh, what these pictures, what these visions mean and how they can help
1: us. Revelation chapter 2. To the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. To the church in Thyatira, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation chapter 3. To the church in Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will make those who who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to the church in laodicea to the angel of the church in laodicea write these are the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the ruler of god's creation i know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot i wish you were either one or the other so because you are lukewarm neither hot nor cold i am about to spit you out of my mouth You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and selves to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
0: Okay, to begin, um, let's return to the picture that we left at the end of Chapter 1 of um, this amazing figure of Jesus, um, so awesome and holy that it caused John to fall at his feet as though dead. Um, and this, this Jesus um, picks John up and says, Don't be afraid. Um, I'm the first and the last. Write down everything that you see what is now and what will take place later. And then the, the the verse that I particularly want to pick up is the last verse of chapter one. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So it's really important that we don't rush past this picture because it's hugely significant for understanding how Jesus is operating or, or ruling. So for the struggling, afraid early church, their question is where, where is Jesus' power and authority? How is he operating in the world? How is he, how is he ruling his kingdom? Mm-hmm. And this is our first massive clue um, that John gives us about what's actually going on from the perspective of heaven.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What are you doing Um well, that's, that's answered in a way by this picture. So what you need to picture is you, you have a, a man, a great king, um, in the centre and around him are seven lampstands. And note they're not candlesticks, they're lampstands. And the, di- the difference is subtle but I think partly significant. The thing about candlesticks is candles can just burn away on their own. Lampstands have to be attended. So there mm. needs to be an attendant walking around putting oil in these lamps, attending them, mm. um, uh, making, sure, making sure that they're continuing to burn, etc. So you've got this, this figure of this great king moving among these lampstands, um, attending to them, keeping them burning, etc. And these lampstands represent the churches.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, the first thing to say is. The primary relation that John wants us to understand about Jesus' rule is that Jesus is ruling through relating to the churches. And that's a really important thing to see. Mm. It's through his churches that Jesus is expressing his rule on the earth. Um, The second thing, the, the second element of the picture is that Jesus t- uh, talks about the seven stars in his right hand being the seven angels of the churches. Um, right hands are always important in the ancient world. The, your right hand is the is um, of a king. is is the hand through which you express your rule. It's the dynamic. Um, it's, it's the dynamic representation of your power to rule. And so it's interesting that these stars are in uh, his right hand and uh, the point being made is it's through these stars that his rule is being expressed Mm. Um, so it's uh, through angels that he's actually relating to what we'll see is that he's relating to these seven churches and there's an angel that clearly corresponds to each of these churches and we'll see that in chapter two and three because Jesus will start to speak addressing the angel in charge of the church at Ephesus and the angel in charge of um, the church at Smyrna, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what's going on? Well, in heaven, the way Jesus expresses his rule in terms of what John's seeing is he speaks to an angel about what's going on in the church, but he addresses the angel. Now, what's really helpful is if, so So let's just have a look at that for a second. So if you look at the beginning of um, the address to the church in Ephesus at the beginning of chapter two, it begins to the angel of the church in Ephesus right. So the instructions are written to the angel. Now, what you need to understand is that's the heavenly perspective. On the earth, there's a corresponding perspective because, um, as you would appreciate and as we know, we don't have angels turning up in our midst delivering messages to us in the churches today. It happens on the earth in a different corresponding way. But um, John clearly points out what that is. So if you go to each of the addresses to the different um, churches, the very last sentence of most of these addresses tells you what, what happens on the earth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches mm. so what's going on from the perspective of heaven jesus's rule is expressed by speaking to an angel about matters in the church
2: mm.
0: what does that look like on the earth well it's the spirit who actually speaks to the church the the corresponding or the same message so mm-hmm. we experience it on the uh, from the earth as Uh, the Holy Spirit bringing revelation about what's on Jesus' mind and heart for the Mm. church. In heaven, it's Jesus interacting with an angel. That's that's what it looks like from a heavenly perspective. Mm. Um, Okay, so we have Jesus intimately involved um, right in the midst of uh, these these seven churches and probably the other thing to say about seven i think seven is significant um, there's seven churches there's seven candlesticks there's um seven stars etc cetera. In, in terms of um, apocalyptic literature um and and the, the use of the number seven in, in prophecies like daniel and ezekiel etc um mm-hmm. traditionally in in Jewish literature, seven is a a number that is often connected with God um, and with God's work Um, and it it communicates something to do with perfection or completeness, that that sort of idea. So I think it's not wrong to recognise on one level we're talking about seven historical churches in Asia Minor But on another level, we're talking about a group of seven that represents the complete church, sort of a representative seven. Um, And so these words, in a sense, are are words addressed to the whole church in its completeness. And so, in a sense, they're just as relevant to us today um, as they were to these, these original seven. There's things that we can draw from these specific messages that reflect the fact that Jesus... Uh, they're giving us um, ideas and an understanding of how Jesus interacts with His whole church, His complete church. Yeah. So, if we if we are to look through um, the seven letters or, or addresses, messages to the churches, um, rather than go through each particular um, church and what's said to each particular church one at a time, I think it would be more fruitful. To have a think about what are the what are the common elements or the patterns and themes that we see reoccurring through each of these um, addresses to the seven churches. Because what we'll find is, is they are specific and slightly different, but the common elements are really, really, really clear.
2: Mm.
0: And it's helpful to see. Uh, what are these common elements? Because it's giving you a huge um, indication of what's really on God's heart about these churches. How does he want to relate to churches? Um, what's what He? What's his concerns? What's he looking at? Um, what's he wanting to encourage them about? What's he wanting to challenge them about as well? So um, if we go through this um theme by theme, the first thing that I'd say is that each of these revelations to the churches begins with a revelation of Jesus himself. So just using the church in in Ephesus as an example, um, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, these are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walk among the seven golden lampstands. So again, what you'll see here is the picture that the picture of Jesus that we've seen in chapter one is almost broken up in the addresses to the seven different churches and each Mm -hmm. church gets a little bit of the revelation of the whole picture of what Jesus is doing and what he looks like and what he's up to and so for Ephesus um the emphasis is on the fact that he's he holds the seven stars and he's walking among the lampstands if you go to um Smyrna these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. What, why is John communicating it like this? Or why is Jesus communicating like this through through his apostle? I think what's going on partly is um, it's, it's sort of a nice picture in the in a sense because it's, it's like each church gets, gets a part of the revelation of Jesus. But if you want the whole picture... Only the whole church has the whole picture mm. um, it's a good reminder that no church sort of has the whole revelation of who Jesus is in a sense that that you um, you need the whole church together to have the complete picture of of um, who Jesus is in all his glory um, the second thing that starts to happen in these um, in in these addresses to the churches, is that Jesus begins by speaking quite intimately and specifically and personally with these ch- churches. All the language is in the first person. I know, I have seen, etc., And he's just pointing out to the churches, you know, that he's well aware of, of precisely what's going on among them. Um, he, he understands their struggles. He He's not neglecting or forsaking them. He sees r- really clearly um, what they're dealing with, um, the good things that are going on, um, other things that are going on that, that he's not happy about either. But it's really a, it's a, a r- real reminder that Jesus is right in the midst of their lives. He's turned up in their midst and he's are watching and observant and well aware and sensitive to um, what his what his people are going through in the churches in the world, and to me it just speaks of the um, the idea of in a in a really um, quite practical way the idea that the church Jesus really recognises the church is his body in the world the church is the body of Christ. Um, on the earth, and um, he's well aware of every part of the body and how it's working and how it's how it's operating, and he and he wants his churches to know. I, I can see. I know what I know what's happening with you. I'm right here with you in the midst. Uh, it's an important reminder in lots of ways because often uh, I don't know about you, but often um, we want a God who would um, r- relate to us perhaps like, like the pagan gods of old which or, or like superheroes of the modern day, gods that would sort of fly in and rescue us from our circumstances, enable us to mm-hmm. escape some sort of difficult situation that we might find ourselves in. But that's not the picture here. The picture here is of a covenant God who turns up and p- promises to be in the midst Mm. Um, to be with his people, um, to be with, with us. But if God is going to be with us and turn up in our midst, and the, all the history of Israel speaks to this as well, um, that's a difficult thing,
2: mm.
0: and it's a difficult thing for the churches. Mm. So what, what we see as these um, letters to the churches develop is that if God would turn up, if a holy king would turn up in the midst of his people, he would. He will behave like a king among them. What and what will kings uh, always do? Well, they will start to sort things out, mm. s- um, speak out how they're seeing things, start to make demands about um, uh, people. Living and behaving and operating in a way consistent with how the King sees things, mm. and so you have this this pattern emerge of words that are saving words and words that are judging words alongside each other. So, um, and that's always been the the way God's operated with His people. If He will turn up, He will turn up to save and redeem and and reconcile and make things new, make things right, restore. Etc., But that will always involve having to make strong judgments as well because he's holy
2: mm.
0: And uh, uh, a, life, a covenant life that, that is about that, that he wants to share with his people that, that is about um, us being holy like he is holy, that, that puts big demands on uh, the people that will, will be in his kingdom. And so what we'll see um, is he will redeem, but he will redeem in righteousness. That is, he won't come and make everything good and just brush problems under the carpet. He'll come and he'll sort things out properly. Mm -hmm. And he'll feel good to save you. But it will, it will require um, judgments being made that can be painful, require discipline, require challenging behaviour, require people repenting and turning from the way that they're living and living a new way. Mm-hmm. And those things that will always move forward together, saving and judging. Just to highlight this, because it's, it's such an important part of what's going on here with Jesus' interaction with the churches, um, if you go back to Mark's gospel, so right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark, all the gospel writers are well aware of this exact point, um, but Mark's gospel does it in quite a stunning way in the very first three verses of his whole gospel. So um, Mark's gospel begins, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that is literally... He begins with, This is the good news about Jesus, mm. the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. And then straight away, he moves into actually two Old Testament quotations. It says it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but if you actually dig a bit deeper, one of these quotes is from Isaiah the prophet, mm. the second half is from Isaiah chapter 40. Um, verse 3, which is that great salvation passage at the beginning of the Servant Songs that begins, comfort, comfort my people. And it's the promise that Jesus is going, oh, the Messiah is going to turn up and save his people, rescue his people. Um, So that's what's happening with a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's picking up that saving aspect to what Jesus has come to do and what his good news is about. What's interesting, though, is that the first half of the Old Testament prophecy that Mark picks up on, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, that actually comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which is the very last book in the Old Testament. Hmm. And in that book, it's a... Yeah, it is. Um, In that book, uh, the prophecy that Malachi brings us is really focusing on a warning to Israel: Get ready! Um, if the Messiah turns up, the Lord is going to come like a conquering king to Jerusalem, and you, you better be ready.
2: Mm.
0: Um, it's the idea. It's the idea in the, the the whole prophecy in chapter three is built around the idea of a an ancient conqueror. It's like you've lost the battle down the road, and the conquering king is going to come into your city and demand terms, like sort out a treaty, um, and you better make sure that the road's smooth for him and that you've cleaned your house and cleaned up and that you're 100% ready for him to arrive, because if he turns up and you're not ready, look out. There'll, there'll be judgment. And so this part, this part of the prophecy is highlighting to Israel the fact that make sure the king is coming, make sure you're ready, make sure you've sorted your own house out first, um, which is really picking up that judging side. So what Mark's doing is bringing these two um, passages from scripture together to really highlight, well, what is the gospel? It's a saving work, but it's a judging work at the same time. If Jesus would turn up in the midst of Israel, there will be salvation, but there, there there will also be a call to holiness and repentance and sorting out your life Israel because because your messiah is about to turn up now that's exactly what we're seeing um in in a way in terms of how Jesus is relating to these churches in revelation he's really saying to them I, I'm turning up in your midst and if I turn up I'll turn up to save but I'm going to also address you about things that need need judging um he will save in righteousness Uh, and he has expectations. He wants wholeness, um, full lives. He wants things sorted out properly, sort of like the picture of um, my old mentor, David Bowen, used to use the picture of it's like a father coming home after a long weekend where all all the sons at home had had a massive house party and the house was sort of in havoc, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and you turn up and you want to put things to right. And there'll be things that are about about rescue and restoration, but there'll be things that that are about challenging behaviour and sorting things out properly and getting to the bottom of what's gone on and re-establishing, you know, a proper proper way that the household needs to operate under the authority of the Father. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what's going on here. Um, That's the point of covenant. This is a God who always has worked that way because relationships matter so much. Um, So we can can start to have a look at the pattern of how this saving and judging work happens. So what what you have to begin with is often um, words that are actually encouraging. So if I flick in my Bible back to uh, Revelation... Very often the judgments are not necessarily condemnation. They might be, I recognize you've persevered and have endured hardship for my name. You've not grown weary. So part of the judging is just when a king makes a judgment, he's just declaring what is, the truth of what is. And sometimes it's positive. So there's great words of encouragement to these churches that are part of the judgment of the king as well. He's announcing the true state of things in that place.
1: Even even the discipline isn't condemnation. It's, yeah, it's just discipline.
0: Yeah, good point. Because conduct condemnation has it isn't isn't the message that we're wanting to communicate. You're right. Discipline is about um, restoring someone in love, getting them to change their behaviour because mm. you love them. Um. So you'll, you'll have these encouraging words, I know your works, I know your deeds, you know, persevere, endure, I, I can see you've stayed true in this area, etc. But then there, there's always an element of these, yet I hold this against you. So there'll be something mm. that the king's saying to the church about is I want you to address this thing, mm. sort this out. And, and it's remarkably specific. And it sort of really cuts to the heart. He's interested in where this, the, where, where his people's heart is, mm. is his priority. And that's a really important thing for us to, us to know as we relate to one another in the church and relate um, to God through his spirit in the church. It's our hearts that are his primary concern. Where's your heart at? Mm. So he says to the church in Ephesus, you've forsaken your first love. He says to other churches, um, you know, you'll, you've become lukewarm, mm. etc. cetera. Um, you've had your eye turned by this or that. Um, there's lots of little examples of this. What's his concern? Well, he wants a, a people for his name, churches, that are wholehearted. Now, that's just another way of saying holy in a way. Wholeheartedness equals holiness, that's really what holiness is. Um, so it's a call. It's a call to. It's a call to people not not to be content and call to churches not to be content or satisfied with a hard hearted love. Um, if you're going to relate in covenant to the great King, it's got to be um, total total commitment.
2: Yeah.
0: Not content with sort of this a shoddy compromised version. Um, Interestingly, I will pick up one little point. One of the things that that you see in a number of these addresses to the churches is Jesus' condemnation of a a group called the Nicolaitans and understanding who they are and what they represent actually reinforces what we're talking about, about not being uh, satisfied with a half-hearted version of love that call to be faithful, don't be seduced, don't be compromised. So the Nicolaitans were a a sort of heretical sect that emerged in the church around this time, and the the basis of their heresy was they basically took this idea that that, um, Jesus' work on the cross had set people free. So they were big into the, the idea of spiritually we're completely liberated or free, made clean but but they went on to then draw the implication that it therefore doesn't matter whatever you do in your life mm. So um, it was a it was a heresy that really encouraged people to live in a way where they completely compromised with pagan society because the idea was well, Jesus has dealt with it all anyway so it doesn't matter what we do and so um, idolatry and deep immorality Mm. creep into parts of the church as a result of this heretical teaching and and um, Jesus directly addresses this and says he hates it Mm. Um, because it's it it's it's a seduction that's leading people away from wholehearted devotion to to Christ it's Utterly compromising of holiness and living a holy life. Um, You can look at things like you can look at things like um, the heresy of the Nicolaitans, etc., and think, "Oh, yeah, that happened two thousand years ago." But um, today, the church across the world is rife with Christians who've rationalised their compromises with the world and the culture around them. Um, the, in a sense, this Nicolaitan heresy, is, it's all over the place. Um, it, perhaps it's more subtle um, than actual idol worship and um, sexual immorality with temple prostitutes, but those, sort, those sorts of seductive compromises of the world that Christians Uh, rationalise and say, oh, it's okay or whatever. That's happening in all sorts of different ways all the time. Now, we aren't aren't being called to be legalists, but we've got to take seriously this call to be wholehearted, single-minded in our devotion to Jesus, Mm. to seeking his kingdom first and staying true to his life and and the gospel message that we've received. Um, It's an important thing to recognise as we... As we live as the church in the world, the other thing perhaps is um, it it just reinforces again reading these reading these challenges to the churches that that I don't think we appreciate in our sort of culturally conditioned way where we where we tend to focus on our individual salvation. How much Jesus is dealing with us corporately
2: hmm.
0: as a church. Um, and, and how much he's dealing with our holiness as a corporate question it's not just about you personally how you live your life it's you're part of a, a a body of Christ part of a church in a town or a community and he's speaking to the church about their holiness mm-hmm. and and there's a sense in which we need to take really seriously we're joined to one another um, and uh the holy life that we live corporately is hugely significant to how how Jesus relates to uh, relates to his churches.
1: So you said before that that holiness and wholeheartedness is the same thing. Is that what is the literal definition of holiness? Is that exactly what it means?
0: It, it's not. It, Understanding holiness, what you need to understand is holiness in terms of how it's presented to us in the Bible is a relational idea. Mm -hmm. So it's about, it it actually is something that defines how relationships operate. So if if we were to uh, recognize holiness in its purest form, it expresses the love between the Father and the, and the Son. And it's a love that's total, permanent and exclusive. So if you if you to if think about it, I suppose in a metaphor, it's like the engine of God's love and his life. It's the power of his love. It's a love that's totally dedicated, um, is complete and it's forever and ever and it never compromises. So holiness is to love like that. It's actually a um, it, it sort of defi- it defines how pure love operates. So in relation to, to human beings, there's a call to holiness as well. Israel's called to be holy because I am holy. And what that's saying is in covenant, you need to love like I love, mm-hmm. a love that's totally for me, permanent, exclusively for me and not given to any other gods. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that, that at last you can't be fickle. It, it's it, probably the only the only place in the modern or, or in the context of human lives and relationships we see anything approaching it is marriage. That's what the call to marriage is. It's a call to holy love. That is loving a person in a way that's just for them,
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's for them till you die.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's it's um giving all of yourself, you don't hold anything back. That's what holiness is. Um, it's a really helpful picture. And it's yeah. it's definitely, in all of these letters to the churches, it's Jesus' number one concern with the churches. I want you to love me back the way I love you. Mm. That's what's happening here. Um, mm. Don't compromise with the world. Don't get distracted. Don't be seduced. Don't be half-hearted. Love me like that. Um. We need to be relating as churches and as individuals to the Lord with this really prominently in mind. It's a really important question, an important thing to understand.
1: So how does this continual saving and judging work that's happening in the churches fit um, in the context of the cross being Jesus' saving and judging work that was final and once and for all and for all sin.
0: Yeah, good question. Um I think you you've highlighted something that's really important and that is the context for all of this ongoing work in the churches is the cross. Hmm. Um what happens is that um in God they've God worked out a way of dealing with the mess of humankind and that was um, a restoration that would involve jesus taking on the consequences mm. of all the fractured relationship and sin, and and sin and all its elements in the world taking it upon himself and putting it to death in himself mm. um so, what, what's going on at the cross? You have the ultimate example of a work that's a saving and judging work. It is the salvation of the world, it's also the judgment of the whole world mm. at, at, at one and the same time. You know, the words you are forgiven is, is, is a word of salvation and, and a word of judgment. Mm. So, what, what we need to understand in terms of what's going on with the churches in an ongoing way is that this is grace operating. This is the yeah. free gift of restored relationship. So what the cross has made possible is we can now live in, with God in our midst mm. in a way that doesn't require us to be afraid or, or run away and hide because um, relationships have been restored. Forgiveness is real um, and that gift of yeah. shared, shared life Um, is open to to everyone. We're in the family. Now we're in the family, there's a freedom that God has to relate to us Mm. that is about addressing behaviour, encouraging, exhorting, Mm. uh, rebuking and disciplining. That's not about saying you're in or you're out. Mm. It's it's about saying graciously you're part of God's family. Um, his, His love binds everyone in his church to, to his life. But we, but within that, there, there's, there's um, the ongoing work of saving and judging that's about um, transforming us to become more and more like him, sharing in his holy life, reflecting his holy life in the way that we live. Okay, we'll keep going. Um, so th- the next thing that happens after th- this... Uh, Jesus calls out these churches about challenging certain sorts of behavior or ways that they're operating or living. Is there's a warning? Um, sort yourselves out. You know, you see lots of words through these letters. Wake up, repent, mm. stop, a- and and also um, the sobering message in places. You see it in to a number of the churches. If you don't look out, because I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Or um, uh, three, three is a good one. Um, well, good ones might mightn't be the right way to describe it. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know. And and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So this idea of sort yourselves out, change your behaviour. Um, return to holiness or I will come and sort you out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, that's um, a sort of sobering warning. What then tends to follow with uh, in these letters is then a recognition that staying faithful, living holy in the world will bring trouble for these churches. It's expected. Mm-hmm. Um, he, th- there's a real recognition that... Um, you will find trouble, that life will be tough. Um, and this reflects lots of teaching throughout the New Testament, um, particularly teaching that Jesus gave to the gospels to, in the Gospels toward the end of his earthly life. He says to his disciples, you'll find trouble in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be easy for you because you're following me. And that's what happened to me. That's mm-hmm. what happened to the prophets before me, and it's going to be what your life is like as well, if you you want to be a witness to um, righteousness Mm -hmm. and truth and holy life, you'll find the world attacks you. Mm -hmm. There'll be great tribulation. But um, all of these messages to the churches finish with a great word of hope. So the key phrase you see over and over again is, to him who overcomes. There's these promises. Mm. So I want to turn now to, to that and just have a, a, a look at what does that mean to him who overcomes and what are these promises that um, that Jesus uh, speaks to the churches about? One of the things that, that um, I think a little bit confronting about how Jesus addresses these suffering churches is his promise is not, like like we said before, it's not to um, enable us to escape from difficult circumstances. Mm. That's not given to one of these churches. Mm. Um, the call is always endure, persevere, hold on, stay true, be faithful, mm. even to the point of death. Mm. So if you look at Revelation 2.10 in, in in the letter to the church at Smyrna, he says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Mm. So literally what's going on here? Literally Jesus is saying to the churches, die well. Mm. Like this is not a way that we generally think or pray. This is it's quite um, in some ways uncomfortable and radical this this sort of interaction Jesus is having with the churches. If you think about how your you individually pray about circumstances or the prayers you hear when you are meeting with the church, often it's about rescue, isn't it? Mm. help us out of this circumstance or this situation or yeah. whatever. Yeah. The, the tone of the the, the tone of Jesus um uh comfort to these churches is completely different it's hang on endure yeah hold the course and die well and then the promise will come yeah that's it, uh, um there's a lot to think about there's a lot to think about in in that in terms of our our attitude to what does it mean to suffer for the sake of his name what does it mean to follow Jesus and and take up a cross how is he helping us in our circumstances well he's he's helping us endure
1: Mm, what's on offer is not not a rescuing but like what's on offer now is just Jesus in the midst of
0: yeah, great, great point. What, what, you know, one thing that that all Christians and all churches can be a hundred percent assured of is, in the midst of suffering and struggle, the promise is He will be with you. Mm-hmm. He will be right in the midst, helping you by His Word and by His Spirit to endure and persevere. Um, he. There's no promise that you'll escape your circumstances. The promise is he'll be with you in the midst of your circumstances, and that's what we have to hang on to. And, in fact, if you have Jesus, you're fine. That's the message. Um, what follows then is is promises to all these churches about um the reward that they will receive if, the, if they overcome, if they hold the line, if they run the race right at the finish line. And, the, and all of these promises are really word pictures that are about the blessing and intimacy of sharing his life. That's mm. the promise. The promise in the end, the reward in the end is one thing. You get to share my life. Mm. Um, you get Jesus in all his... Um, full, rich, joyous um, life. You will live. That's the promise. You might die, but you will live. Mm. Um, What's really interesting is, and I've made a list of them, If, if you list all the promises to all the different churches, the word pictures, lots of them are straight out of the Old Testament, but, again, they just speak of sharing God's life. And what else is really interesting about these promises is every single promise will be returned to as the story unfolds in Revelation. We will see We will see uh, the Christian church receive every one of these things, every single one of them, um, over the course of the next 22 chapters. So just to read them out, the promises are, are things like this. You will eat from the tree of life. You will not be hurt by the second death. You'll receive hidden manna, picking up... Um, the way the way God Yahweh provided for Israel in the desert, you'll receive a white stone with a new name. That idea of being given a name in the Old Testament really expresses um, uh, something about authority, something about the fact that it expresses a relationship where you belong to someone else in, in a way that's personal and connected, etc. Um, you will have authority over the nations. You, you will receive the morning star. Even that one's picked up.
1: What does that mean?
0: Um, can I leave that one till Revelation chapter 22? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it, um, it would take a bit of explaining, but it's definitely there. You'll be dressed in white. Your name will be written in the book of life. You'll be a pillar in the temple of God. You'll be given God's name. You'll even um, get to sit on a throne and rule. So a lot of these things is you'll share all aspects of his life, the intimacy of being named, the power of sharing in his rule,
2: yeah.
0: um, you know that precious closeness of, of actually being um, uh, made holy, dressed in white, etc. Um, they're beautiful pictures. Okay, so they're the main. They're the main. Um, Sort of thematic concerns of these different um, ad- addresses or letters to the churches. I want to just finish, perhaps, by talking a little bit about how how do how do these letters um, help us today? How could we how could we in what ways are we challenged or or encouraged to? Gra- grasp a bit of a fresh view of how Jesus is relating to His churches in the world, and I'd say a few things out of reading chapter chapter two and three that are really striking from my my perspective. One, it, it's a reminder that Jesus is ru- ruling through His churches, and we must we must have a very high view of the church. Mm-hmm. One of the tragedies, perhaps of the modern day is how much the, the the concept and name of the church has been dragged through the mud. Mm. The church, if you look around today, looks like a pretty shoddy, broken, partial, unimpressive thing in so many ways. And even among Christians, you know, there's, there's often deep cynicism about the church or disappointment in the church mm. or a sense of apathy. Oh, yeah, the church is there, but I'll just go on with my Christian life in my own sort of way uh, w- without a real um, intentionality about what it means to be part of the church. Mm. And I'd be challenging you today if you're, you're listening and some of these ways of thinking are part of how your thought, um, you need to recognise what's going on in Chapter 2 and 3, that that in the middle of this mess, in the middle of a church that looks unimpressive and mm-hmm. and has the worldly church that has made made such a mess and done done damage and in some ways looks ineffective and divided and whatever in the middle of all that is the true church is jesus' true church, the fact that he is bringing about the purposes in his kingdom through relating to the churches in towns and cities all over the world. And we've Mm. got to take that really seriously. And and we've got to repent of our view of the church that's built on cynicism or disappointment or apathy Mm. and ask the Lord to give us a fresh vision of how do you see your church? Mm. And we need to conform our life and our relationships to this view of things. We need to be intentional about relating to one another. We need to take really seriously that lots of how Jesus is operating in the world is corporate. It's Mm -hmm. not just you and him. Mm -hmm. It's him and his churches and you're part of the church. Mm -hmm. So that would be the first thing I'd say. The second second thing that I think is quite significant is we need to recognise In our own lives, but but particularly as part of God's church, that the discipline of God, that saving, judging work that God does—if He would show up, if if Jesus would show up in our midst—that's how He would relate to us. We need to embrace the judging as much as we would embrace the saving. Mm. Um, His love will come with challenges to our behaviour and demands that we repent and change our life in all sorts of different ways because he wants a love that's the best sort of love. He wants a holy life. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think it's really striking, toward the end of chapter 3, the letter to the um, church in Laodicea has a short section in verse 19 and 20, those whom I love... I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. Just to say a couple of things about those verses. Note that the initiative is Jesus, is with Jesus.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He speaks, he's mm-hmm. the one knocking at the door. Mm-hmm. And our response is that we need to open up, open the door, let him in. That is, let him in to all the dark corners that he wants to speak to us about and mm-hmm. challenge us about. Not, not, not just the sitting room that we've got, sort of looking neat and tidy, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to come in and and share all of life. That picture of intimately eating eating meals with um, those he loves. It's, it's a reminder of that um, great passage in Hebrews 12 about the way that God um, disciplines his sons. And I'll just finish by reading that and making one or two little comments. But it re- reinforces pretty much the same idea. And lots of things that we've seen um, in the letters to the churches are reinforced by the writer to the Hebrews in these first 12 Um, verses of chapter 12. So Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If your struggle against, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as a son. For for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Sorry, how much more? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Um, um, Again, I'm not going to open up this this whole passage and teach things, but just to underline a few things. God is treating you as a son when he's disciplining you individually, but but it applies to churches as well. Mm. Um, You are legitimate um, by the very fact that Jesus is addressing things in our corporate life and saying, change, Mm. sort, sort out, repent. And if there's none of that going on, you would start to ask questions about, are we actually legitimate? Mm. It should be going on. It will will be hard, but it will produce a a rich harvest. And it it is all about his intention that we may share in his holy love, his holy life. Um, We don't need to be people that go around searching for sin in one another. That's That's not what's being said here. But it's about being attentive to a king in our midst who is going to speak to us the truth. About our circumstances, our lives, our relationships, so that so that we can live with each other and live with Him in the way that he, He's always intended. Mm. Um, it will always be specific, like it is to these churches. It's not some vague clean up thing. It's mm. um, the Lord will pinpoint attitudes or actions things that are specific and inconsistent with his life that he wants to change. And he won't do it all straight away. There'll be something for, for this week and there'll be something for next month and there'll be something and there'll always be something um, as, he, as he conforms us more and more to be like Jesus. And it's all because he wants the very best for us. Um it was a, a, it was a radical revolutionary thing years ago when I began to see that repentance is actually not something that we sort of have to cower about or be ashamed about or whisper about in the dark. It's actually an incredible witness to Jesus' rule and victory.
2: Mm.
0: For churches and for individuals, to repent is a profound statement of faith that we have a saviour, that we have someone who's dealt with all of this stuff. You are making a declaration when you repent to heaven and earth that sin is dealt with, that Jesus is victorious. It brings joy to heaven when we repent. Um, it's a cause of rejoicing and it should be part of our life with him and with one another because in the end, um this is part of what it means to overcome. He wants you to have all of him. That's the message of these letters. I'm not giving you a half-baked version of my life. I want you to have all of it. He wants us to feed on his life, to drink, to be dressed, to be named, to even sit on a throne with him and rule. Um, there's no part of his life that he hasn't opened up and said, it's yours. Mm. Um and it's so important that as he knocks, we open the door and respond um, with intentionality. Life is urgent. Don't waste your time. Don't just trudge along. Um, Jesus Jesus is doing things, moving in the world. He's active, passionate, mm-hmm. and we need to get on board. Um, I was reading a Tom Torrance book, a devotional book that – had this quote that I'll finish with, the nearer to Jesus Christ the church lives, the nearer that day appears. What he's talking about is as you live close to Jesus, that, that's, that sense of urgency that comes with recognising he's coming back, mm. um, uh, that that becomes more real and more mm. prominent in your life, more a driving force behind how you relate and how you speak and how you deal with things. Um, The other thing that I'd probably add to Tom Torrance, dare I, would be the nearer you live to the church, the nearer that day appears too. And so if you're living sort of distant from connections with brothers and sisters among God's people, Mm. it's a challenge. Get back on board. Ask God to show you those those relationships and uh, the life of his church that he wants you to interact with and be a part of and commit to mm. um, His church is going to go forward together um, there's a real corporateness to how Jesus is working out his purposes in the world that we're seeing through chapter two and three. Mm. I might just finish by praying because I forgot to start by praying. Mm. Dear Lord, thanks for this session and the things that you're showing us. Um, I just pray that you would bring to our mind and our heart things, the things that really matter to you that are on your heart for us. Shift our thinking about the corporateness of following you. Um, teach us to treasure the church. Give us a new vision. Of the significance and beauty and power of your church in the world. And we recognize there's so much about it that's hidden, there's so much about it that's by faith. But we want we want to live with your perspective. Um we just recognize again your Lord over your church, you're in our midst. You never leave us or forsake us, and thank you for the reminder and the promise today that, um, uh, with your help, we can endure. And, and what's held before us, what you're offering, is a, a share in your life that's not partial or drip-fed, but it's um, you totally opening up to us. That and that's amazing. And we just want to respond by totally opening up to you. Yep. so bring to the light things that need to come into the light. Change our hearts and minds where they need to change. Encourage us on our way. And I pray that we in turn would be encouragement
2: and support to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm